courageous with your sustaining power, the hope that you give us in our lives. I pray that we will just understand better our relationship to you as a result of this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to introduce Dr. Ed Birch, our Executive Vice President, who will introduce the speaker. When life loses its meaning, when your world is suddenly turned upside down, when there is nothing left that resembles normal life, where does one find the strength and sustenance to go on? For naval aviator Captain Jerry Coffey and others who were held as prisoners of war in North Vietnam, there was only one choice, to draw upon one's inner strength, strength that comes only from a strong faith. This morning, through the generosity and interest of our community friends here in Santa Barbara, Gerd and Pete Giordano, we are privileged to have with us Captain Jerry Coffey. Captain Coffey, who was a prisoner of war for seven years in Vietnam, struggled with finding meaning in a life turned upside down. This morning he will share with us, drawing upon his unique life experiences, not just a message of survival, but a message of hope and faith. Won't you join me in welcoming to Santa Barbara and to Westmont College, Captain Jerry Coffey. Thank you. Dr. Birch, thank you very much for your introduction. And thank you for your very warm and gracious welcome. You know, I've been blessed with the opportunity to live in Hawaii now for the last 21 years or so. Somebody has to do that. <laughs> but during that time, I've become very sensitive to the Hawaiian spirit and culture. And having had the chance to work with Dr. Birch and some of your faculties talking with you this morning, watching you interact with each other as you came into the gymnasium slant chapel this morning, and feeling your warmth and your gracious hospitality, it's very clear to me that the spirit of aloha is alive and well in Westmont. So I want to thank you so much for your welcome and for the privilege of sharing some time with you today. Dr. Burt said that I'd served our country as a naval officer, and I did that for 28 years, and that's service to our country, of which I'm very proud. I'm very pleased this morning also to to introduce to you a, a member of your own community who also shared those prisons of North Vietnam with me, Mr. Charlie Plum, uh, who was one of my contemporaries. We had some time to get together last night, and when POWs get together for a reunion, they just kind of laugh and scratch and lie about how good we're still looking, that kind of thing, you know? <laughs> it was good to see Charlie, and it's nice to have him here today, too, especially as a member of your community, and to spend time with my friends, the Giordanos, who are really a part of your community as well. But having served my country as a naval officer and being very proud of that service, just as many of you in this audience are proud of your service to our country in whatever form that may have taken as faculty or may take in the future, it doesn't change the fact that being a POW is a very dubious distinction. Charlie's and my friendship is a very dubious friendship based upon where it began. So to have been a prisoner of war is not something that you really kind of, you know, advertise. And the last thing I would like to be thought of is as a professional POW, obviously. But you know, 
during that time in North Vietnam, I learned some lessons and insights that were very transferable. We all find ourselves as, as students, as faculty, as parents, as family members, sometimes trying to navigate through difficult and scary com and complex passages in our, in our personal and, and academic lives. Sometimes we look around us for that guidance, those old black and white answers, those values and touchstones upon which we thought we could rely, but as often as not, we find so much ambiguity and gray areas and compromise, and you know we have experts on every side of every issue. And sometimes it's tough to make the right decisions and judgment calls with any sense of certainty and confidence. So we have to extract our lessons from our own life experiences, as well as from the people around us, because none of us have time to make all the mistakes to learn from ourselves. I'd like to focus upon some of those lessons and insights that can be derived from such a unique and in many ways very bizarre experience. And while I do that this morning, while we have this opportunity together, I hope to make it so clear to each and every one of you here this morning how this experience from which I will be drawing today really is your experience in so many more ways than you may realize, regardless of your age, your station in life. Because I want to plant the seed of belief and hope that had it been you in my little rubber-tired sandals there in those prisons in North Vietnam all those years, you would have come home the same way and said the same things and feel the same way that I feel right now. Because we are so much alike. There truly isn't anything extraordinary about myself or about Charlie or our contemporaries that were there with us. You see, we're all the same clay and spirit. And we all have the same capabilities to not just survive an experience like that, but to go beyond survival, to emerge better, tougher and more capable than we would have been without it. As we go along together, I hope it will become more apparent. As a Navy pilot, I was flying an airplane called a Vigilante, which is a very complex, twice the speed of sound reconnaissance airplane. Now, if you saw Tom, uh, Tom Cruise bopping around in Top Gun, right? That was me. <laughs> Every Navy pilot thinks he's Tom Cruise, believe you know. <laughs> bopping through San Diego, motorcycle, leather jacket, sunglasses, hot flying a hot jet, you know. Tomcat airplane, making out with his flight instructor. <laughs> Hollywood, I'll tell you. In any, in any case, suffice it to say in the time we have today, the aircraft was hit by an aircraft fire. The hydraulic system was disabled. We lost total control. We ejected from the airplane at very, very high speed, as in 680 miles an hour. Now, just imagine bombing down 101 out here in your convertible with a top down at 680. And stand up in the front seat, okay? <laughs> some small idea of the impact that high-speed ejection will have knocked unconscious, injured badly, broken forearm, shattered elbow. My crewman and I both survived the ejection, but later on he was killed in the very first fierce battle for our capture. I was captured, and over a 12-day journey, traveling at night in a Russian-built Jeep kind of a vehicle and stopping during the daytime at small villages and hamlets, ultimately I arrived in the capital city of North Vietnam, Hanoi. I was taken to a a big old French-built prison there. You know, I was expecting some kind of a POW compound, like we again the Hollywood version of what POWs do. And we pulled up in front of this huge, formidable, fortress-like prison called Wallo, which in Vietnamese means fiery forge. I was escorted to my first cell, down through round corners and through big corridors and and kind of tunnel-like passageways. My first cell, they shoved me roughly inside. A huge, heavy wooden door slammed behind me. A big iron bolt clanked home on the lock outside <laughs> with a note of finality. And I couldn't believe this was happening to me. You know, it's supposed to happen to the other guy, never to us. 
And for the first time in my life, I found myself literally thrust into a totally foreign and hostile environment with nobody else to turn to for advice or help or sympathy. No other source of strength except that which I was to bring in there with me, somehow find on my own. The cell was a little wider than this lectern, about like so, six and a half feet long. Along one wall was a concrete slab that jutted out about 20 inches, my bed, at the foot of which was a set of ankle stocks, wooden on the bottom, heavy iron manacle that came down across the top and locked in place with a big rusty padlock. One tiny window very high in the back wall with a double row of iron bars, through which all I could see were the shards of filthy broken glass embedded in the concrete on top of the 16-foot wall that surrounded the entire city block-sized prison. Rusty barbed wire stretched on top of that. Small tin bucket in one corner of the cell. No lid. Supposed to take care of all my physical requirements. And that cell just literally reeked of the human misery that had been there before me. Decades of human misery. In his earliest weeks and months when the interrogations and the extortion and the pressure were the most intense as they tried to exploit me, all of us, for military information, of course, and for propaganda. And I'd only get back to my cell sometimes long enough to kind of take a big breath, lick my wounds, get ready for the next time that those keys would rattle outside my door again at the wrong time of the night or day. And I knew that I was up again. It would be my turn. I prayed a lot. But I began to realize that the nature, the nature of my earliest prayers was really kind of futile, kind of useless, because I seemed to be expecting God to do everything for me rather than take enough of an active role to do something for myself. I remember one of my very first prayers was really futile to the absurd. God, if you just give me those last five minutes to fly over again, I'd sure fly somewhere else for starters, okay? <laughs> very productive at that point. Or futile in the sense that I'd say, I don't care how it happens, but please, Lord, let there be a military victory in South Vietnam soon, or maybe a, a political settlement, or at least a prisoner exchange. Somehow get me out of here back to my country, back to my family, because I just don't know how long I can endure in these circumstances. And if I could have somehow known at the very beginning that I was going to be there for seven years and nine days, I don't know what I would have done. But you know, gradually I began to accept the fact this might be my life for a while, I better get my feet on the deck and my stuff together and start getting on with it. And you know, my prayers began to change. And I quit saying, why me, God? And I started saying, Show me, God. Show me, God, what I'm supposed to do with this. What are you preparing me for? How am I supposed to use this experience? Help me to use it to go home when, whenever that might be as a better, stronger, smarter person in every possible way that I can be. To go home as a better naval officer. To go home as a better American, a better citizen. To go home as a better Christian, better husband and father and, and friend, all my friends every possible way, God, help me to use this time productively so that it isn't just some kind of a void or a vacuum in my life. And after that realization and commitment, every day began to take on a new meaning. Because now, there was purpose. There were ways to be better and smarter. There were new insights to gain about myself, and about the men in the other cells around me, or about the Vietnamese communists themselves, or about the little ants and lizards that would share my cell. I'd pace back and forth in that tiny cell, three short steps and turn, three steps and turn. We used to call this the Hanoi Shuffle. I mean, walk several miles a day that way, three steps at a time. As I would, it would sometimes occur to me that whenever I returned home, maybe there'd be some opportunities to share something about the experience. And I was thinking, of course, with my, my family, my friends, 
I never dreamed there would be opportunities like the ones that I've had, like this one this morning. But I'd ask myself, okay, coffee, what are you going to say? How can you possibly condense the essence of an experience like this into maybe 35, 40 minutes and say anything that really makes any difference at all? And I didn't know the answer to that question the entire time I was in prison. The answer never really occurred to me until I was finally repatriated in February of 1973. Seven years, nine days later, I came home and looked around and saw that so many changes had occurred in our country during those seven years. I know you've read about and heard about those late 60s and early 70s. Your faculty members remember those years. Incredible turmoil, confusion, disillusionment, conflict. I came back and realized that the very key to my survival all those years in prison, and for most of my friends as well, would serve me just as well as a key to survival right here at home on a daily basis for the rest of my life. And the key to that survival was simply faith. When I say faith, I know we automatically tend to think of spiritual and religious faith, and that's certainly part of it. But in this context, I'm talking about four aspects of faith. First of all, faith in ourselves. Faith in ourselves and the prisons in North Vietnam to recognize and pursue our duty. Seldom perfectly but always to the very best of our ability. And who could ask for more than that? The second aspect of faith is faith in one another. Faith in the people with whom we work and study. Faith in the people we love. Faith in those men and other selves around me all those years. Men upon whom I depended and in turn depended upon me. Sometimes desperately. Third aspect of faith is faith in our country, America. Our basic institutions. Our national purpose and cause at any given time. And the fourth aspect of faith, of course, faith in my God, perhaps the foundation for all. You know, I know that there are some of you in this audience today, even as young as you may be, who could just as well be standing up here saying some of the same things I'm saying, maybe better. You who have overcome your own personal tragedies, academic setbacks, professional challenges, and not just survive them, but gone beyond surviving them, to emerge from them better and tougher than you would have been without them. There's inspiration at our elbows every single day of our lives right here in this Westmont community. There are heroes among us, not the least of which is the hero inside every one of us. Translating that heroism to faith in ourselves in those prisons in North Vietnam, faith in myself to pursue my duty, to minimize the net gain the enemy could achieve by having me there at his total mercy for such a long time, when after months and months, and as it turned out, years and years of pressure, extortion, and torture, I found that I couldn't always stick to my name, rank, serial number, and date of birth, faith in myself to simply do the very best that I could to divert my enemy's attention. Faith in myself physically and mentally, walking those several miles each day, doing push-ups and sit-ups in a little concrete slab, at least as many as my diet or injuries might allow at any given time staying in as good a physical shape as possible, staying awake and alive intellectually as well. I thought my brain was going to atrophy when I first got there. Just the opposite. We became so busy each day, communicating with each other, going through periods of very deep personal introspection. I had seven years to think about what I think. Take one day, soon, and get away and think about yourself and how you got to where you are today and how you're going to get to where you want to go. We use that time to do memory work or memorize all the obvious things I'm sure you would think of too. But ultimately, every man had committed to his own memory bank the names of over 600 other American POWs, all alphabetized, going over them frequently to make sure we didn't drop any. 
We used the time to learn as much as we possibly could from one another. It's like a small university. We studied foreign languages and sciences and mathematics, mostly by tapping through the walls from cell to cell. While I was in prison, for example, I learned so much French through the walls. When I returned, went to UC Berkeley, pursuing a master's in political science, they gave me two years of credit just by examination for the French that I'd picked up through the walls in Hanoi, and I was average. And I figured if I could survive seven years in a communist prison, I could hack two years at Berkeley, too. <laughs> it turned out I was almost wrong, too. <laughs> And a lot between class. We use the time to memorize and compose and really appreciate poetry as well. Some of the poetry of Rudyard Kipling. One of our friends there was a real godsend because when he was a youngster, as it turned out every year, maybe someone can relate to this, every year his mom forced him to learn a brand new poem to recite to their annual Thanksgiving family reunion. He hated it. But, but like most moms, she had the hammer, so he did. And he passed one of Kipling's poem called If. You've heard it probably where a father's giving advice to his son. And it could as well be to his daughter nowadays. Locking onto the verse in the, in, the, in the poem If that says, If you can force your heart and nerve and sinew to serve their term long after they are gone, and yet hold on when there's nothing left within you except the will that says to them, Hold on. Hold on. We're inspired by another poem called Invictus by a man named William Ernest Henley, part of which says, Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I've not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeoning of chance, my head is bloody, but unbowed. It matters not how straight the gate or how charged with punishment the scroll, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. We are responsible. We are accountable. We are the captains of our souls. We're so inspired by the poetry that we learned. We all, we're, you know, we all began to compose our own. We, I say compose as opposed to wrote because we had no pencil or paper. Never forget my very first effort at composing poetry. You see, I was sitting on that little concrete slab one day and I was munching on a small piece of bread. Sometimes I get bread as a break from the usual rice diet. We come in a small little roll about so big with crust all the way around it. And you can be sure that wherever they kept the flour for that bread in those old dungeon-like kitchens of Wallow Prison, there were bugs and weevils and roaches and flies. So what else? The little protein supplement, our bread. You could use that. That was good. I took a bite out of my bread one day and I looked at it and I was inspired to compose my very first poem there. I said, little weevil in my bread, I think I just bit off your head. And, and I had... And I tried to improve on that poem, but it went downhill after that. I couldn't make it any better. <laughs> the point is, I was sitting there in a sweltering Hanoi summer. My cell was heat-soaked. My body was covered with heat rash. I was miserable. I didn't even know when or if I was ever going to go home. And I said, Coffee, you got to be going off your rocker here, man. How can you be sitting here in these abysmal circumstances laughing at your stupid little poem? <laughs> but I was. And it just reminded me of the importance of that beautiful, traditional sense of humor that serves every one of us each day. Charlie and I couldn't have gotten through what we did without a sense of humor. You couldn't do what you have to do every day at Westmont without a sense of humor. That's why I always wear a Mickey Mouse watch, okay? <laughs> Never take myself too seriously. Put things in perspective. Maintaining that sense of humor through, through the good and the bad. Faith in myself to bounce back every time I found myself down and hurting and scared. To gut it out and hack it and be as tough as I could for as long and often as necessary. Faith in myself to survive the... No, not just survive, to go beyond survival. To survive and to return with honor. 
because the alternatives weren't acceptable. When I came home in 73, I looked around because of all those changes. We seem collectively to have so little faith in ourselves to make any difference anymore. In our families, our communities, our academic institutions, our economy, our political system. But that was ironic to me. We came home and realized that we have a lot to keep faith in. So many more reasons to have faith in ourselves, to make differences around us, to look around us each day in whatever level that may be. Again, starting in our families, our campus, our educational institutions, and recognize the things that aren't working, the things that are wrong or fouled up, and really believe, hey, I can step in here. I have faith in myself to step in here and change that, to make the wrong things right, get them going in the right direction at the very least. Faith in our individual leadership, listening to that voice that comes from deep inside that more often than not has the right answers. Faith in ourselves to cope with this incredible pace of change that keeps coming down the pike in our society. And recognizing its inevitability to prepare ourselves through education to cope with that change. Not cope with that change, to embrace the change. To recognize that we've prepared ourselves so well for that change that we embrace it. And we capitalize upon it. And not be frightened or victimized by the change. That kind of faith in ourselves. Faith in ourselves to simply plant our feet somewhere firmly and finely in this otherwise sea of ambiguity and gray and all the compromise over the place and simply say once and for all, unequivocally, listen, that's right and that's wrong and I know the difference. And not allow ourselves, or those who look to us for leadership and example, to sway back and forth of what might be stylish or fashionable or convenient or maybe easier. But to stick to the things that we know down deep are right and just and moral and ethical. That kind of faith in ourselves. At one time or another, we are all prisoners of, of war, POWs. Prisoners of woe. As in, woe is me, you know? Gosh, everything's going wrong, da da da, da. And sometimes we might even wish that we were somewhere else or doing something else or that our circumstances were different or maybe that something hadn't happened. And realistically, for now, perhaps change might not be possible. Sometimes you know it's a state of mind, but sometimes we simply have to gut it out and hack it and be tough and recognize the adversity and, yes, the pain as the opportunity that it truly is to see the purpose in our challenges and to go beyond surviving them like we did in Hanoi. Second aspect of faith, faith in one another. Our motto there was very simple, unity over self, not a bad academic motto, campus motto, not a bad family motto. In order to maintain that unity, we had to communicate with each other. We did that covertly because if you're caught communicating with another American, you're punished severely, but we did it anyway. We used a little system that we called tap code by tapping on the walls. And I want to explain how tap code works because it really illustrates how we can overcome obstacles and difficulties with originality and innovation and persistence and, and, and creativity, the very qualities that we need on our daily lives. TAPCO is based upon 25 letters of our alphabet. We throw away letter K because we can use a C interchangeably. It makes the same sound enough at the time. And we arrange those remaining 25 letters in five rows of five letters each, one row on top of the other. As you're looking at it, it would be A through E in the top row, F through J in the second row, third row of five, fourth row of five, fifth row of five, putting Z in the lower right-hand corner. Now I have five horizontal rows and five vertical columns of letters all in the same square. Not that high-tech now. Come on, hang in there. A is up in the corner, right? First row, first column. So I want to tap an A on the wall. I tap. Once for the row, once for the column. So A is one and one. B is in the first row, second column over. One and two. C, first row, third column over. One and three. F, second row, first column. 
two and one. N is right in the middle of the square, third row, third column. Three and three. Z way down here in the lower right hand corner then would be would be five and five. You got it right. Fifth row, fifth column. So it's there and there in prison and I'm tapping to the guy next door, say Charlie and I are on the wall, say, Charlie, what about that uh, Westmont group? You know, they really got it together, don't they? Well, sometimes it abbreviate, but I can't abbreviate Westmont, so it sounds like this. W E S T M O N T Warriors W A R R I O R S How about Santa Barbara? I'd abbreviate finally. S B, how about America? A, M, E, R, I, C, A. We tapped so much in those early days, we got big calluses on our knuckles, and I got them now from speaking so much, actually. And, and the guards would, but the guards would wise up and grab your hand. If you had calluses, you'd be considered guilty. You'd be punished summarily. So we tapped on the walls of little rocks or pieces of metal, something hard, to ever shows those calluses. You come back from an interrogation, maybe the interrogator had let slip some news going on here at home or out in the world. Of course, you'd be anxious to share that news with the rest of the guys in your cell block. So as soon as the guard closed the door and locked it and left, you hurry over the wall. You didn't have far to hurry, actually. You go to the wall. <laughs> <laughs> you call up the man next door. Naturally, you respond. <laughs> Pass on the news, wait a few minutes for that, for that to circulate down to the rest of the cell block, put your ear on the wall, and the whole cell block would sound like an office full of professional secretaries on their computers as that word was being passed from cell to cell to cell. And TAPCO was very versatile. You, you could flap your clothes, you could sweep the floor, you could, you could do many different things. You could chop wood. There was a small prison complex where, the, where every cell was a separate little hut, no common walls through which to tap. But every morning somebody had to chop the wood to build the fire, to boil the water, to drink. So a different American was out there, chop, 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 chop. You know, broadcast into the whole countryside. Anybody could listen. <laughs> the ultimate refinement of TAPCO was something we developed there that we called vocal tap. And this is where you translate those taps on the wall, one through five, to five different noises that we tend to make as people. Anyway, some of us make these noises. And it translated like this, for example. sneeze and cough and hack and spit in order. I mean, the guards were always spitting and hacking anyway. They had no idea we were communicating. I, w I was in a tiny courtyard one time waiting to be interrogated with a guard about six feet away from me. He really thought he had things under control, right? Well, the man in the cell behind him had been shot down a couple of months before and brought into the comm system. There's a very high window in this guy's cell. I could hear him coughing and sneezing and hacking. And he sounded like he had to die of pneumonia. But he's telling me that just before he'd been shot down, the Green Bay Packers had won the Super Bowl. <laughs> And this is, a, this is in 1966. I didn't even know what the Super Bowl was yet. But communicating, making it a sacred obligation to bring each new man into that comm system. And when that man next door over there, your buddy, the guy in the next cell, when he's over there down and hurting and being punished for whatever the reason, his ankles locking those stocks at the foot of his slab and his hands cuffed backwards tightly behind him, and he'd been like that for two weeks or three weeks, and he didn't know how he's going to get through the night or day, you get up to your wall frequently each day and you tap to him GB 
which means God bless. And he knew that that also meant be tough, babe. Hang in there. I love you and I'm praying for you. You bet you were. And then when he knew that you needed him for the very same reasons, he'd be up for you too. Each night when things would quiet down before you go to sleep, you tapped to the man on the other side. Maybe they tapped to you first. It didn't matter. But you'd always exchange. GN. Good night. GBA. God bless America. Every single night. That kind of faith in one another. Kind of caring and trust and support and love for one another. Keeping faith in our families half the world away. My youngest son was born two months after I was shot down, so we didn't meet till he was seven. Faith in my family to keep my image alive and a part of them all those years. Again, a faith more than fulfilled. Keeping faith in one another. I came home in 73, and in so many ways, it's kind of a mirror-like image of that lack of faith in ourselves. It's a lack of faith in the people around us. Sometimes a lack of faith in our own families, right? Spouse to spouse. Parents to kids, you've seen it. The kind of faith where we just can't even communicate. The lack of faith where we can't even communicate with each other honestly and frankly and say what needs to be said. Having the faith in one another where we can communicate like that. Why do we make it so much more difficult than it needs to be? We don't tap to the walls. From the bedroom to the kitchen. From office to office or classroom to classroom in our work and study places. Keeping those lines of communication open through faith and trust in one another. Empathizing with each other. Not getting caught up in the high-tech communications of our society, but remembering the importance of face-to-face -face communication. And having faith to solve problems together. That's part of your educational process. It's learning how to communicate, written and spoken. And there's more ways than that with feeling and empathy as well. To solve problems together, whether they be economic problems, whether they be ecological problems, academic problems on campus, it doesn't matter. Together, with faith in one another, you can solve every single problem we face. And I recognize that sometimes we just like to think we don't need anybody else. Especially us macho Top Gun guys, right? Man, when the chips are down, we run out of all of our alternatives, and we really, really hurt. We need one another. Keep faith in each other. Take good care of each other. Be there for one another. Listen to one another. Support one another. Encourage. Celebrate each other's successes as if they were your own. Have faith in each other like we did in Hanoi. Third aspect of faith. Faith in America. And every day for those seven years and nine days, to the loudspeakers in each cell located very high on the wall with no on, off, or volume switch, we heard everything through their propaganda broadcasts, everything that was bad about the United States of America. All the negative, all the sensational. We heard about every anti-war demonstration, every anti-war statement by entertainment personalities and politicians, the same statements we were taking torture not to make. And sometimes after four, five, six years overwhelming wave of negative propaganda about our country and our cause, you have to say to yourself, wait a minute, man, don't believe that junk. Listen, you're an American. You've lived there. That's your home. This isn't the place to change your mind, dummy. Keep faith. And I reached into my past. And I latched onto the words that some teacher up at Modesto High School had told me, a civics teacher had told me about all the reasons that our country had been able to stay strong and to endure for almost two centuries at that point. I remembered something that my Boy Scout master had told me about all the reasons to be proud of my country and the freedoms that it guarantees not only for us but for so many millions of people all over the world. 
Keeping faith in America was tough there sometimes, but we did. And you know, maybe it was because, in part, because we recognized the people on the outside of the prison walls or in downtown Hanoi were no better off than we were on the inside of the prison walls. Keeping faith in our country. When I came home in 73, and still in, in, in February of 1997, when I opened up the morning newspaper of whatever city I happened to be in, I watched the news on CNN or the local stations at night, I continue to see and hear so much that's bad about the United States of America, about our country, about our society, about our educational system, our economy, our political institutions. And sometimes here as our media gives us little snapshots of ourselves, totally out of context, glossing over our confidence in those institutions, isn't it difficult not to become cynical and sarcastic and apathetic about the whole thing? And isn't that ironic when you stop to consider that we are constantly surrounded by reminders that we continue to live in and make work and you will lead the most democratic form of government, the freest most powerful militarily and economically, yet charitable and merciful, that has ever existed on the face of the earth. Ever. And truly, its future is in your hands. Reminders like this gathering here today, for example, to attend a, a beautiful college like Westmont, coming together like this, listening to a speaker who might say something about spiritual values, the spiritual values that you have the freedom to practice on campus every week, how rare chapels are on our college campuses today. To listen to a speaker who has no particular political agenda. Reminders like the continuing one-way flow of refugees all over the world. Mothers and fathers have learned when they get that question about, you know, from their children about whether a country is good or bad. You say, well, are people trying to get in or are people trying to get out? Reminders like the absolute crumbling of monolithic communism over the last seven or eight years, which didn't happen in a vacuum, by the way, which happened as the direct result of our collective 50 to 60 Cold War years of service and sacrifice. America has held the beacon of hope high for people behind those various iron and bamboo curtains all over the world. You can bet that every time I go to Washington, D.C., and I bet Charlie does too, we go to the Vietnam Veterans Memorial Wall. And I seek out my crewman's name there on plaque 4 East, line 135, and I recognize as I see my own reflection in that shiny black marble that but for a split second or a quarter of an inch, it could be my name there right next to his or in, instead of his. And I recognize that that wall with the 58,000 plus names on it had to go up so that that dingy, gray, hated concrete wall in the middle of Berlin would come down. We need to make that connection. So many reasons to keep faith in our country. Recently, I was talking to a young woman who'd sung in a choir as a part of the celebration of the 50th anniversary of the liberation of Europe, D-Day, in Normandy, France. After the ceremony, they were standing there talking, and an elderly French couple approached them. The, the old man had tears in his eyes, and as they approached, he was rolling up his sleeve, and he was pointing to a number tattooed on his arm. And he said to them, Auschwitz, Auschwitz, au cause de vous Américains, je survivais. Because of you Americans, I survived. One tiny example of all the reasons we have to be proud of our country, its track record in the past, and its potential for the future. Keeping faith in America, like we did in Hanoi. Fourth aspect of faith, faith in my God, perhaps the foundation for it all. As it turns out, the first two English words that I saw scratched on the wall of a cell by another American who had been there first were two words with an equal sign between them. And that little formula simply said, God equals strength. God equals strength. 
And for me, that really worked. I recognize this is a very personal issue, but for me, that really worked because I was never, ever totally alone. I could always find just a little bit more strength when I needed it. And every man had his own personal spiritual routine on a daily basis, but for sure, every Sunday morning, the senior officer in each cell block would pass a certain signal on the wall. Church call. Wait a few minutes for it to circulate down to the rest of the cells, then every man would stand up in his own cell if he were able to, and at least in some semblance of togetherness, we'd all recite out loud the Pledge of Allegiance to our flag, the Lord's Prayer, and frequently the 23rd Psalm, focusing upon, upon that part of the 23rd Psalm, as you might guess. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil, my cup runneth over. As we looked at the communist officers and guards who kept us there, we recognized that in spite of the fact that it was we who were incarcerated, it was our cup that runneth over because we knew that someday, whenever, however, we would return to a beautiful and free country, but they're having to live out their entire lives in that system of theirs, not likely to know much else. It is our cup that runneth over. When you have seven years to think about what you think, and you're stripped of all the material trappings by which we tend to identify ourselves. My white navy uniform, my wings of gold, my hot jet airplane, my Mustang convertible, our plaques on the wall and our trophies and our achievement pins, our pickup trucks, and it's all gone. I mean, it's all gone. There's nothing but our flesh and our bones and our soul and the time to look inside. And believe me, we see God. And more importantly, we see our connection one to the other that we truly are one family under God. And with that realization, how can there be bitterness or hatred or prejudice? Those seven years also taught me that we can't conduct our businesses, we can't study, we can't legislate our laws, we can't educate our youth in a political, in a, in a spiritual vacuum. Because that's the last line of defense, believe me. It's the final source of strength. And it works keeping faith in our God like we did in Hanoi. Faith in ourselves, faith in one another, faith in our country, and faith in God. Literally, the key to my survival, most of my friends there as well, but more importantly, can work for any of us. You see, that's the point. You don't need to go through that kind of a weird, bizarre experience to drive those benefits and insights of simply keeping faith. And I want to tell you why I appreciate this opportunity this morning. Because you represent the future not just of your community, but of our nation. The education that you receive, both academic, social, spiritual, all combined to make you the leaders that you will be. And I consider it a real privilege to be here and share with you this morning. I want to convince you that had it been you and my little rubber-tired sandals, you would have come home for the same reasons that I did and feel the same way that I did for all the same reasons. That's the whole point, and you should believe that. If I've given you just the slightest little twinge of belief in yourself or your, or your school, your family, that's exactly how it should be because you should have that faith in yourself. All those years, the communists tried to break my spirit, my confidence and my faith, and they couldn't do it. And the reason that they couldn't believe me in great part right here before me, as strange as that may seem, because you represent the spirit, the ethic of why I was there and making the sacrifices that I did. And I want to thank you so much for what you provided to me all those years and leave you with 
Lord bless. Thank you. Thank you very much. Captain Coffey, Jerry, thank you so much for being here with us. You've inspired us. You've reminded us of our faith and our commitment to our God and what it means to endure difficult times and find strength. Jerry, thanks. I hope you'll always feel that Santa Barbara is home and Westmont College will always welcome you back here with us. Thank you very, very much. Dismissed.